I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to another episode of Okay, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Now, it should come as no surprise to any of you that I'm a pretty big fan of podcasts in general. Podcasts, I, I think, are, are indicative of a lot of the trends that we see across media lately. They're hyper-specialized. If you want to listen to someone talk about gardening in the Pacific Northwest and only gardening in the Pacific Northwest there's podcasts for that uh, they're downloadable at your convenience you know, you don't have to plan your day around catching your favorite podcast you download it and listen to it when you want and they're for all intents and purposes free aside from you know donating via Patreon by your choice now the topic for today's episode was actually inspired by a conversation that I listened to on another podcast. And in fact, it's the podcast that got me listening to podcasts. If you're not aware, the filmmaker Kevin Smith hosts, well, a number of podcasts, including one called Fat Man on Batman. Being a big fan of Batman myself, naturally I started listening to it a number of years ago. Recently, Kevin, along with his co-host uh, Mark Bernardin, were having a conversation about streaming services, and they hit on several points which I thought were both interesting and important. They didn't go deep into the economic implications of what they were talking about, but they came very close. So what I'd like to do today is to take a deep dive, the, well, the deep dive that they didn't, and expand a bit on the conversation that they were having. Today, I'd like to talk about the future of home entertainment and the economics that are driving it right now. I will be hitting them up on Twitter once the show posts, so if Kevin and Mark 
do wind up listening. I hope this helps to answer some of the unanswered questions that they had from their conversation in episode 190 of uh, Fat Man on Batman. The conversation between the two of them started uh, about the new Star Trek show, Star Trek Discovery. Now, whether you're a Star Trek fan or not, and I will say, personally, I don't really have a problem with Star Trek. I've just never been a big fan of it. The, the new movies are pretty good, but I've never really followed it. Uh, but what's interesting about Star Trek Discovery is that it's not airing on, on CBS proper, but rather it's exclusive content to the newly launched CBS app. Now, CBS hasn't broken any new ground by creating exclusive content for a streaming service. Netflix and Hulu have been doing that for years. But it's the fact that this isn't a new kind of strategy that's so interesting. Because because this is one of the major television networks in the U.S. chasing a strategy that the upstart streaming services have, have put in place... And, and I think that CBS copying the idea from these streaming services has a lot of implications for the future. For years, the major networks seem to have been pretty content to ignore the digital streaming platforms and, as we'll talk about later, even facilitated their rise. I think that a lot of the big players in traditional home entertainment honestly saw digital streaming as a completely separate market from what they do and so figured that they didn't need to pay them much much attention but that may prove to be a huge mistake we'll circle back to that for now let's focus on what cbs is doing so cbs is launching their own app which will allow subscribers to access all of their content including whole seasons of their, you know, most popular shows. But CBS has a problem. Most of their programming is popular among a much older demographic. Now, when you're talking about airing a TV show on TV, that older demographic isn't an issue. In fact, it's kind of an asset. Because older people will tend to make time in their day to catch their favorite TV show. Now that's not a broad over generalization. We don't do broad over generalizations here on this show. On this show, we go by the numbers. So real quick, let's make sure that I didn't just say some ageist nonsense based on only anecdotal evidence. Let's go to the stats. Based on Nielsen data, People 65 and up watch an average of 48 hours and 4 minutes of traditional TV a week. Traditional being described as live viewing or DVR time-shifted viewing. Also, people between the ages of 50 and 64 watch an average of 39 hours and 35 minutes of traditional TV. By contrast, 25 to 35-year-olds watch an average of only 18 hours and 23 minutes and 18 to 24 year olds only watch 12 hours and 43 minutes of traditional television the problem that CBS has is that in launching a new app many of their regular viewers through the traditional medium 
may not be willing to cross over and start using it. The numbers back this up as well, as we see the trend flip when we look at streaming service subscribers by age. Nielsen estimates uh, of baby boomers, uh, so you know those around their you know, late 50s and throughout their 60s, uh, of those uh, boomers, only 15% use any kind of streaming service. And for those who, who are older than that, the number goes down to 6%. While for people in their 20s, the number's 31%. So the older you are, the less likely you are to be interested in these newfangled streaming services. And CBS knows that. Launching a new app with a video player that had to be created from the ground up is no small investment. And with the numbers as they are, CBS knows that they need to lock in an audience for their new app. Some demographic who, can, who they can get to subscribe and stay subscribed. Now, they could do this through targeted advertising of, of their you know, current regular viewership through traditional medium, or they could you know, offer generous trial periods. But CBS has landed on what is probably the best way to do this which is to develop and provide content that already has a highly dedicated fan base, and preferably content that they already own the intellectual property on. So, you know, they can avoid any further sunk costs. And this is what leads to Star Trek Discovery. Star Trek has a broad and dedicated fan base, and right now, aside from the movies, there is no new regular Star Trek content available. And wouldn't you know it, CBS still holds the IP. So CBS develops their, this new Star Trek show and is releasing it exclusively through their new subscription-based app. Basically, if you want to see Star Trek, you need to become a CBS subscriber. Nothing suspect here. It's a perfectly sensible business strategy. Sure, it's clearly geek bait to, to rope in a hopefully rabid audience uh, to build their channel, but the baited geeks are getting a new Star Trek show, so who's to complain? Of course there's an issue, or I guess more of a nagging doubt on my part. But to get to that, let's, let's first take a step back. Why is CBS launching an app in the first place? As I mentioned, developing the player and associated programming that goes with launching an app isn't cheap. It's why for so many years the various TV networks and channels have been more than happy to leave that kind of thing to Netflix and Hulu. After all, Netflix and Hulu absorb all the costs associated with getting their streaming up and functional, absorb all the costs of maintaining their network, and ensuring their service doesn't crash, all of that responsibility being shouldered both physically and financially by someone else. All the networks had to do was lease out their programming to Netflix, Netflix and Hulu, pocket the check, and continue on. So why the sudden interest in taking all of that on? Well, 
The answer to that, if, if you haven't already shouted it at whatever device you're listening to this podcast on, lies in the numbers that we went through earlier. The fact of the matter is that viewers are shifting away from watching tele, uh, television according to the network schedules and are instead cutting the cord, turning to streaming services for their entertainment needs. It makes sense after all. Streaming services provide the consumer with something that they've always wanted, but didn't know was entirely possible. The ability to watch what you want to watch, when you want to watch it. This is, of course, part of a kind of evolution that we've seen over the past few decades. In the beginning, yeah, I'm sorry, i got to do that more dramatic In the beginning, there was broadcast television, and it was... Well, not bad, but certainly not good. TV shows would air at a set time, and then they'd be gone forever. And if you missed them, too bad. And the mass of television consumers cried out for a better way. So the networks gave them reruns. If you missed an episode of your favorite show, you could wait until summer, and the network would replay it. Not a bad deal for the networks. They got to sell more ad time on a TV show that they had already paid for, so it was basically a chance to extend the fiscal life of their investment. But consumers still weren't satisfied. They wanted to see the programs that they liked at their own convenience. This was around the same time that DVDs were entering the scene, being cheaper and more compact than VHS tapes. So the networks would put out their content on DVD, and you could buy the shows that you wanted and watch them whenever you wanted. But these DVD box sets were expensive and bulky, and consumers asked to, once again, watch the things they wanted when they wanted to. So TiVo was developed. If you missed the program, you could set the box to record it. Of course, some of us recognize this, uh, that this was really just a new machine that was doing what we were all doing on our VCRs. Listeners who are around the same age as me probably remember the stack of blank VHS tapes that uh, used to sit under the TV stand or uh, trying to figure out how to set the timer on your VCR to record something while you were away. It was, well, it was TiVo before TiVo. But again... TiVo was a tad cost prohibitive, and while it would record your shows to watch later, it had limited storage space, so you could only keep so much. Then finally, a company saw an opportunity to to break out of their tepidly profitable DVD-by-mail business by doing the most groundbreaking and surprising move the market had ever known, by actually giving consumers what they had been asking for. Netflix, quickly followed by Hulu, started providing massive amounts of viewing options available for streaming for a nominal monthly fee. For seven bucks a month, you could finally watch what you wanted to watch when you wanted to watch it. Now, and and this is where we get into the Darwinian nature of the market. The networks and channels didn't seem to pay this much mind. If anything, they were thrilled 
because they had these young upstart companies offering to pay them for dead content. Sure, some of their more popular old shows were, were in syndication and still making them a bit of money, but Netflix and Hulu wanted them and more. And networks sold, or and more to the point, leased. Uh, all of it. Because why not? What's the worst that could happen? What they failed to realize, and, and I think that this will eventually be seen as one of the most short-sighted moves of all time, was that Netflix and Hulu weren't additional outlets for their programming in, in, in the way that syndication or DVDs were. Netflix and Hulu weren't a separate market. Netflix and Hulu were their competitors. And by leasing out their programming to them, they were essentially helping what would become their competition to build their audience. Now, there's several reasons why I don't particularly feel bad for the networks here. The first is that, well... In a free market, if your consumers are asking for something and you ignore them, you're pretty much asking for it. You're asking for someone else to enter the market and say, they're not giving you what you want, but we will. This kind of thing is usually born out of, I guess to, to, to coin a phrase, what you could call a monopoly of concept. Yes, I did just make up that term. There is probably a, a more academically correct and better version of it out there, but for now, I'm sticking with it. What I mean by monopoly of concept is when companies in a particular market come to a point of homeostasis, basically, they're still competing with each other, but really only for the marginal consumer the the ones right on the edge otherwise everyone has their consumer base pretty comfortably locked in everyone's making a fair profit so why bother rocking the boat by innovating tv networks had a monopoly of concept in that they seemed to think that their way of doing business airing television programs on their schedule and expecting their consumer base to conform to that was the only way it could be done that's how it was, that's how it is, that's how it always will be. Now granted, you couldn't do anything approaching a streaming service until fairly recently, so for most of their history, we can't fault them for that. But once the technology became available, their failure to recognize the opportunity afforded by it is really their own negligence. And in the free market, I have a hard time feeling bad for the slowest gazelle. The second reason not to feel bad for them is that once Netflix and Hulu appeared on the scene, the networks should have realized what they were looking at. Instead, they saw an opportunity to squeeze a bit more money out of their old shows by selling them off to the streaming services. Because who would possibly want to watch old episodes of Full House or Arrested Development? or The West Wing, or Twin Peaks for that matter. These were shows that, for the most part, the networks weren't even putting in syndication anymore. These were shows that they didn't even feel worthy of 
putting on air to fill space at two in the morning. How could Netflix and Hulu possibly make money by offering them? Well, if they'd been paying attention to the demands of their consumers, they might have seen the potential there. Sure, most all the networks made have made half-hearted attempts at offering the same level of convenience. They, they, they've put their programs uh, through their channel's website. They've created their own basic apps. But they rarely invested in the video player on the site or, or tried to offer broad content. Myself personally, I've largely given up on watching anything through the individual channel's app or website because the of the limited content and their high tendency to crash it's again it's a perfect example of short-sightedness because though i may not be watching their programs as they air by watching through their website i'm still watching the commercials that they're airing i'm one more viewer that they could use to justify to to advertisers to pay more for the ad space and yet they keep most of their content off or locked and invest very little effort in the interface the third reason is that there were any number of signposts along this road that an observant person should have recognized as a sign of things to come Breaking Bad went from being a, a little-watched program to the sensation that it became, by its last season, largely thanks to those earlier seasons being available for people to, to binge-watch on Netflix. Shows that popped up on the streaming services have been getting second lives for the past five to six years, to the point where also largely thanks to the streaming services they've been able to create new seasons for them arrested development got their fourth season the gilmore girls got another season interest in full house greenlit a sequel series in fuller house these were all things that the networks should have taken note of but really didn't until recently anyway and this is why cbs is launching their own app they're, they finally accepted that streaming is not a fad and that the money all seems to be flowing towards it these days. And they want in. And they're not alone. HBO launched HBO Now, distinct from HBO Go, in April of 2015. Now this is a bigger deal than I think it got credit for because this is a premium cable channel creating their own app that was totally separate from any kind of cable package. This is HBO offering their content to consumers entirely separate from any kind of obligation to the major cable companies. With HBO Now, you didn't need to pay for a subscription through Time Warner or Comcast. They cut out the middleman and were accepting payment directly. This was significant because for decades, cable companies have denied consumers what they wanted, which was the ability to select the channels that they paid for a la carte, selecting and paying only for the channels that they wanted. Instead, in order to get 
one of the channels that you wanted, you were forced to purchase the package that it was a part of, and thus get 5 to 30 channels that you didn't want, and pay for them. The apparent success of HBO Now, uh, of the HBO Now model, showed networks that there was a demand for providing content directly, if you had desirable enough content. Now, additionally, a, a trend that also started over the the last year or so has been intellectual property holders. The, the networks and the studios letting their agreements with the streaming services lapse and pulling back their content. Disney, after having signed a pretty major contract with Netflix about a year ago to provide all new Disney content to the streaming services, let their previous agreement for their older content lapse. Right now, you can still get new Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars content through Netflix, but they've pulled back all of their classic animated movies. It should come as no surprise that last year, Disney announced that they would be launching their own exclusive app. So what does that all mean for the future? There's a lot of of disparate threads, and I'm, I'm, I'm pulling them all together at this point. Well, from the looks of it, We're going to see everyone, everyone, trying to launch their own exclusive app. No longer being satisfied with making the stable but meager money by being the content equivalent of organ donors to the streaming services, all the networks will pull back their content in an attempt to make that Netflix money. Uh, Netflix money being projected at somewhere in the neighborhood of $11 billion in revenue for last year. But of course there's a problem. If every network and channel is offering their content for around $7 to $15 a month, you have to ask yourself at what point does your monthly cost for access to all of these different apps become greater than what you were paying for for an extensive monthly cable package. And that question is step one in the recognition of the coming entertainment bubble. Step two involves getting into the fact that, unlike most bubbles, the majority of players involved here at least seem to realize that they're in it. Netflix and Hulu seemed to have recognized the writing on the wall five or six years ago. That was when they both started to develop original content. They likely recognized the precarious position they were in. If you're reliant on other sources for all of your content, and and as you popularize or repopularize that content, what's to stop the IP holders from pulling that content back so that they can profit off of it and simply leaving you the streaming service with, you know, the dregs. So Netflix and Hulu invested heavily in content of their own. Content that they would hold and be the exclusive providers of no matter what happened. And the thing about their content was that it quickly became popular 
if not more popular than their other offerings. Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, Stranger Things, the list goes on. All of which are hugely popular with audiences, and in many cases would more than justify remaining a subscriber to Netflix or Hulu, even if all of their other outside content went away. What's more noteworthy isn't the streaming service pushing for their own original content, but rather just how much they've pushed out over the last few years, and more importantly, how much they're spending on it. And, and, and on that spending, the, the streaming services are not alone. Everyone in the entertainment industry seems to be in a spending frenzy lately. Uh, pushing out as much content as possible and at higher budgets than we've ever seen before. Uh, Maureen Ryan and uh, Cynthia Littleton published an article in Variety back in September of last year called TV Series Budgets Hit the Breaking Point as Costs Skyrocket in Peak TV Era. Now, having read this article... I really have to say that it is of a level of journalistic excellence that I guess I never expected from Variety. Maybe I'm being unfair, uh, but I've never really read Variety magazine before, and I just kind of knew it from its kind of clever headlines about Hollywood gossip, but if this is what they're publishing, I may have to start subscribing. Anyway. The article goes into some detail about the rapidly increasing budgets for TV shows. To give some examples uh, from the article, Game of Thrones, being one of the more most noteworthy ones, will wind up costing $15 million an episode for its final season. Uh, the second season of Stranger Things uh, ran at $8 million an episode, up from $6 million an episode for season one. Uh, the, the Netflix show The Crown cost $10 million an episode. Uh, over on Amazon, and God, how could I leave out mentioning Amazon for this long, you know, through their uh, Amazon Prime video service? Uh, of course they're in the mix, too. Uh, they're shelling out $5 million an episode for their half-hour superhero comedy, The Tick. And of course, traditional cable channels aren't left out. Stars paid $8 million an episode for season one of American Gods, and TNT paid out between 5 and $6 million per episode for their recent period drama, Will. These, of course, are all compared to the more traditional budgets that networks have been used to seeing of around $1 million per episode or less. So what accounts for this arms race of spending? Well, if my suspicions are right, I'd say that most, if not all, of the players in the market are acutely aware that as content becomes dispersed, it will drive consumers to eventually hit a breaking point at which they'll no longer be willing to individually purchase all the separate available streaming options, and they'll feel the need to start picking and choosing. So every network, app, 
channel, and service wants to be holding a property that people absolutely must see. Something that would make the monthly fee for their service worth it to the consumer. To me, this would explain the sudden surge in the amount of content being greenlit, as well as the approval of the kinds of budgets for all of these shows. For all of these shows, it's all part of an effort to not be the guy left without a chair when the music stops. What these networks and studios seem to be doing is, I guess, deficit audience building. They're dumping way more money than might be sensible into programming, creating as much as they possibly can and throwing it all against the wall in the hopes that any of it sticks. And not just sticks, but sticks with the same level of popularity as Game of Thrones. Because even if you have to spend a ridiculous amount of money to do it, if you come up with the next Game of Thrones or Walking Dead or Stranger Things, you can rest easy that when the bubble bursts and the market contracts, you'll have something that will keep the audience with you and ensure that you make it out the other side. It's a case where it's not about direct profit. With some of these budgets, even with a massive subscriber base, you can't make that money back. At least not directly, and not immediately. It's more of an investment, really, in your own future existence. Because that's what comes next. I've mentioned an entertainment bubble, and what do bubbles do, but burst. I suppose... The more dispassionate, but but I, I also think the more accurate way of phrasing it would be to say that rather than a bubble burst, what we'll see is a market realignment. And I use that term because bubble bursting sounds calamitous, and, and, and they are. But to the consumer, it really won't be. It will be uh, the, the, the market readjusting to a new status quo. And again, that's not entirely a bad thing. In fact, on a great many levels, it's a good thing. This goes to the, the streaming services threw off the whole entertainment market because they offered something that was highly desirable to consumers in a market that wasn't paying all that much attention to their demands. This led to a shift by consumers to the streaming services. And now the traditional outlets are doing what should what they should be doing in a market of perfect or near perfect competition. They're chasing the consumers. They're trying to get back some of that money by actually meeting the consumers' demands. Unfortunately, With all of them trying to do the same thing, they're creating the conditions for their own downfall. Or, well, at least the downfall of the less adaptable ones. Firms in the market will battle it out to be the must-subscribe app or service. And as with any market in perfect competition, the primary beneficiary will be the consumers. While 
all the players are are battling it out for our dollars we're being treated to a golden age of quality and television entertainment great shows are being produced risks are being taken money is being spent to make sure that these shows are as good as they can be and there's more content available than ever before for us the coming realignment should be pretty awesome not so much for the players in the market they'll be fighting it out with each other some of them will go under we we should be prepared for the possibility of networks that have been around since the advent of television completely collapsing. I don't know which one specifically, but it's likely that it'll happen to a few of them. As consumers make their choices, the services that keep enough viewers or subscribers to survive will probably start to pull back a little on their, their budgets and productions and, and willingness to greenlight new projects, and the market will fall into a new status quo. What that status quo is exactly, I can't say. But I would guess that it will be one where content is largely no longer aired you know, weekly, but rather available to stream. That seems like a safe assumption, because in the end, it's the thing that consumers actually wanted more than anything else. To circle back on something for a minute, I do find it really fascinating that, that one of the trademarks of bubbles, at least bubbles as they relate to, to stock market trading, is that the people involved rarely, if ever, realize that they're in one. The, the cognitive biases and, and herd behavior that create and sustain a bubble tend to distort a person's ability to tell that the market is growing in an unstable way. Here, though, I really think that most of these companies see and know exactly what's going on. As I've talked about in earlier episodes, I'm, I'm a big advocate for explaining a lot of reckless behavior by companies under the umbrella of chaos. Basically that corporations and their ownership do things because, well, because they don't fully understand what's happening in the market around them. But here, based on the maneuvering that's going on, it really seems like these people do see what's happening and have a good sense of where it's all going to lead and are doing it anyway you know, building the bubble to the point of bursting, simply hoping that they'll be the one to survive it. Uh, another kind of uh, separate point is a, a second-order effect that I found really interesting from the, the Ryan Littleton article, was that they talked about the impact that this entertainment arms race is having on the production industry. With studios and networks rapidly trying to produce as much content as possible in their effort to get a hit, it's driving demand for production crews through the roof. All of those people that you, you see in the credits of movies and TV shows with jobs, uh, job titles that you've never heard of, those people need to be there to make these shows happen. More shows being produced 
means that the existing production staffs are being stretched and a demand is being created for hiring new directors of photography, key grips, best boys, lighting techs, sound engineers, etc. Now, Ryan and Littleton talk about this leading to a, a lack of quality in those positions as new inexperienced people are brought in to fill the increasing number of slots, which I suppose could lead to a drop-off in quality of some shows, but what I would be more concerned with is that when the bubble bursts and the market realigns, really, more to the point, the market contracts, there's going to be a lot of people who came into television production jobs today that can't find work because the labor force will now be greater than the demand for it under the new status quo. I'm not sure what you really done about that, but it is something to consider, especially if you're starting your career in that field. Another point that, that I thought was important was that, well, the market will certainly realign. It's not necessarily a given that budgets uh, for TV shows will come down, or, or at least come down dramatically afterwards. Uh, Ryan and Littleton point out that, at least right now, a lot of the networks are justifying the higher per-episode cost by pointing out that video-on-demand platforms and streaming services are extending the shelf life of shows. Uh, Netflix, as an example, Netflix only had to pay $8 million an episode for Stranger Things once. Now, if you're in love with that show and watch it and rewatch it, and that justifies you continuing your subscription to Netflix for 10 years so that you can maintain your access to Stranger Things, then the cost of the show, that $8 million an episode, is really being amortized over a much longer period. Because in the past, a TV show had to make its money from ad sales during its initial airing. You know, well, with some minor considerations given to the potential to syndicate it later. But that's not the case here. And that difference may have lasting effects beyond any future realignment. And that all brings us back to CBS and Star Trek Discovery. CBS is investing heavily in their app as well as exclusive content to stock it with. They're betting that the loyalty of Star Trek fans will secure their future in the market. As the wise man once said, we'll see. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be back to The Wealth of Nations for Book 1, Chapter 2. Uh, this episode involved a good amount of speculating on my part, so if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, feel free to join us on the OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong Facebook group uh, and leave a comment, or you can email the show directly at OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word with no punctuation, no comma, no apostrophe. As always, special thanks to George Sacco, who composed the unlicensed music that I'm using in the intro and outro. If you like his stuff, check out his channel on YouTube. That's George with a J and S-A-C-C-O. 
Be sure to take some time to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And with that, I'll see you next week. I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.